drops, falls, and lifting. It hurts the patient, it actually breaks your back, and it costs millions to both organizations in terms of hours lost and people unable to work anymore. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of EMS One Stop. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, looking after your back, looking after your organisation financially, making sure you don't get to uh, pick a body part suit off because you've uh, dropped a patient. And also, how do we get people off the floor efficiently, effectively, and dare I say, with a degree of dignity? Helping me uh, in this discussion today, I've got uh, EMS lawyer and uh, very well-known EMS lawyer, Matt Strieger, Esquire of Strieger and Kevney up there in Jersey. So uh, I've already been warned not to mess with him. Brian Hupp, who is the EMS Director and Chief from Maury Regional EMS in Tennessee. And ladies and gentlemen, the newly minted Tennessee EMS Administrator of the Year. And also Simon Claridge, who's joining us from the UK. Simon is the Chief Executive Officer of Mangar International and Wincare. And uh, we'll let Simon explain uh, who he is and where he's from momentarily. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, good morning. Rob. So, uh, and good afternoon and good evening. So, this has been a challenge to uh, coordinate, first of all, because we are actually separated by, I think, about 5,000 miles. Uh, we are in four different time zones, and I can't do time zone math. So, it's a miracle we're all here. So, thank you for, for getting on that one. Falls, drops, and lifting. Let's start off with, uh, with you, Matt, first of all, because I was down at NAMS in San Diego and people were raving about the session that you gave because one of the quotes you made really sort of made me sit up and think that if we just stopped dropping people you'd be out of a job explain so it's funny because Rob I was being a little facetious when I say that I don't actually do the defense of cases like this so this was kind of my uh my snarky comment as it should be shocking to everybody as a as a lawyer and as somebody from New Jersey that I had a snarky comment but the fact is we have a huge problem and looking back and, and we've done this kind of retrospective analysis of claims, um, looking at the types of things that give rise to liability to EMS providers. And it's less the things we think of. It's less things like patient refusals and it's more things like dropping people. Um, and I don't understand why I do understand why, to be fair, why in the year 2022, we are having this epidemic of paramedics and EMTs across the world, at least in the United States. And I can't speak to globally. But across the country, we're having this epidemic of EMTs and paramedics dropping people. And it hurts themselves, but it hurts the patients. And it's one of these things that I, I think roots back to the competency of what we initially do. You know, you come out of EMT school and like day three of EMT school is the fundamental job of picking somebody up, moving them someplace else, putting them back down safely. And that's for a lot of people the last time they ever get that. It's not anything we competency in your clinical competencies. It's not something we test in EMT or paramedic school. We test splinting. Um, we test CPR. We recompetency all of those things, but we don't do anything on lifting and moving. And it bothers me. And I think there's a reason why, at least domestically in the United States, there's no real legal requirement to do that. You know, we do bloodborne pathogens training every year. Why? OSHA tells you to. 
We do um, N95 mask fit testing, which up until two years ago, everybody was like, why are we doing N95 fit testing? And now we see why, because, you know, they were a little ahead of the curve on this one with OSHA. Um, but there's no OSHA standard. There's no legal requirement. And in organizations that economically don't have a lot of wherewithal to spend money on, you know, education and competencies that is not legally mandated, this is not legally mandated explicitly, um, they don't do it. And we find that there are some very obvious best practices. Um, and I see them every day, guys. I, I still practice clinically. And I go out into the world and I practice as a, as a paramedic and I see what the people are doing and I shake my head and I'm like, even when you address them, I, I had a patient, I did a quick anecdote the other day, I was sitting in the ER with a patient who was uncooperative and bordering combative, who, like everyone else, was sitting on the wall waiting for all flow to the hospital. And the patient was at height and was at, you know, the highest position on the stretcher and he was throwing his weight around. And the, one of their coworkers and I, and I did not work for the organization, both said to the EMTs independently, Hey guys, you should drop that stretcher down, you know, lower because he's going to flip. And they both looked at me twice and said, we're good. Thanks. And I'm like, why are you good? Thanks. Like people are directing you like constructively directing you to fix this. And no one wants to do it. And I, and I don't get why there's cultural issues for that. Um, we, you know, have to fix that piece of it. I think legally in the United States, at least there are things that are drive to this. Um, you know, there's the OSHA general duty clause that says that as um, healthcare providers, not just an EMS, we have a legal duty to provide a workplace that is reasonably free of known workplace hazards. And it's really hard at this point in 2022 to say these are not reasonably known workplace hazards. It's very obvious that that's there. Um, I will speak to a hospital in New Jersey that on the nursing side was cited for $50,000 for nurses being injured in not properly moving patients. Um, I don't know whether that portableizes to the EMS community, obviously internationally in the UK and elsewhere uh, and in Canada, I'm not sure what laws exist on that topic, um, but here it's pretty obvious that they exist, but the only places that have done these things are places that have been burned. You know, we have a client uh, up in Connecticut that's done a wonderful job creating a patient movement sim lab. Their insurance company paid for the insurance sim lab, the movement sim lab, because they had a huge problem with, uh, you know, paramedic and EMT acquired workplace injuries and with the liability associated with dropping patients. And this is like the lowest of the low hanging fruit, Rob, for us to go and fix. Well, first of all, let me come back and say that I think your client, if they're willing to be named and willing to tell us how they're doing this, you know, getting insurance to pay for this. We're in the Amer we're in American EMS. Getting insurance to pay for anything, of course, is a challenge. So that sounds like something we want to follow up on. I'm going to go across the pond now because here's my backstory that uh, when I was uh, an EMS leader in the UK, I attended a health and safety executive, which is the sort of the over overarching body for health and safety in the UK, a class entitled health and safety for senior executives. And it was a two-day course where I basically learned how many ways I could go to jail and be held culpable for health and safety infringements and infractions because health and safety law in the UK, I think, and I've certainly seen that, is much more severe, much more in your face than it is here. And, that, and, and you made that point elegantly there, Matt. Simon, what are some of the sort of the challenges and solutions to how the UK are doing it? Because without a doubt, the UK has much more focus on worker provider health and safety than, than I, I'm sorry to say, than we do here in the US. When we're talking about falls specifically, Rob, yeah, it tends to be the emergency services that lift anybody really who falls and they are required to use appropriate equipment to, to lift those people according to appropriate manual handling techniques. You will have every ambulance in the UK that will carry a device specifically for uh, lifting somebody from the floor 
when they've had a fall. Increasingly, we are seeing that in care homes as well. So your senior living in, in the US, we're seeing training around lifting techniques and appropriate equipment. As you mentioned, I think earlier, Rob, the, the iStumble algorithm, which each of the ambulance services in the UK now use, and increasingly every care home in the UK will use to decide whether a carer within a care home can lift or whether it is a a clinician from the, from the emergency services. So, yeah, there, there, there's, there's a real focus on appropriate lifting techniques uh, to support the faller, to support better care for the person that's fallen, but also to support the, the carer and, and sort of musculoskeletal injuries. And we've got uh, a whole heap of evidence that supports that. And it's interesting, actually, you make another point there. And again, from, from the days of your when we had an issue with particularly the, the care and residential sector where they went, well, we have a no-lift policy. And my response as an EMS chief was, guess what? So do we. So therefore, let's manage this patient together as opposed to you just calling, in this case, 999, for us to come and lift the patient off the floor. Of course, having something like the protocol to work out, you know, when is it safe to lift? When isn't it safe to lift? Is something I think we could uh, we could all benefit from. And one of the solutions we found, again, because we had such a powerful health and safety executive team in the east of England, we actually had them summon all, and they can do that, they summoned all of the care home providers to a meeting where we had this discussion by saying, you know, if I walked into a your your patient's room or your resident's room and said, I ain't lifting, I don't have to because I have a no lift policy, I would be on the front page of the newspaper. Uh, but actually, it's a responsibility we both share. And so we then uh, sat down and said, okay, how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to work together. We're going to work about how we reduce risk on both sides. And I think that's one of those solutions that we need to come up with here. Uh, and so, you know, thank you for making those points. Brian, first of all, for full disclosure, uh, Brian used to work for me back in the day in Richmond. It was an actual pleasure to be uh, your boss and your mentor over the years, Brian. But one of the things that we uh, did fairly early on was realize that, uh, once again, we're losing people to musculoskeletal injury. Um, we are just hauling patients to their feet and we needed to find a better way of doing it. And so, therefore, we spent a lot of time investing in better back care and obviously that, that lifting equipment. I mean, what are your early memories of you know how we, how we integrated that? It was coincidental. Um, I saw providers falling, trying to lift patients up. Personally, as a EMS supervisor, I would first respond to fall in hopes that I could cancel the ambulance uh, and keep them in service and try to do a one-man lift, putting myself at, at great risk. And at times, I can remember lifting a, a very petite lady up and, and feeling a rib pop, you know, and having to then call for an ambulance and have her transported to the hospital. Uh, all avoidable things. Um, and right as we began to discuss as a peer cohort that we need some sort of tool or policy, in comes Rob, and I have no financial ties to you now, so I speak very freely. But the check is in the post. <laughs> I've heard it before. I've heard it before. Um, here comes Rob with the elk, and we were all very skeptical. You know, here is this fancy piece of equipment. Providers, EMS providers were very skeptical of whether or not it was going to be beneficial or useful. It looked bulky and cumbersome, and it had a pump and tubes. And man, uh, they embraced it once they saw it work in the field. Um, we were able to lift not only just bariatric patients, but patients who we would otherwise put at risk of injury and put EMS providers at risk of injury to positions to move them to a stretcher. The elk itself has the ability to put, place a backboard on and lift a patient from the ground level up to the, the lowest stretcher level without putting the patient at, at risk of fall or provider injury. Um, to touch on something that Matt said, you know, why, why is this such an epidemic? 
and I'll provide my my two cents, and that's EMS providers are critical thinking decision makers who are used to getting things done, getting them done quickly and efficiently. And um, if they feel like they can snatch the patient up with a sheet under their arms and put their backs at risk and put the patient at risk, uh, but they can do it quickly and efficiently, they're going to make that decision. One of the things I saw in Richmond is when we transitioned from a manual one and a half person stretcher to the power stretcher without the power, this is before power loads. Stryker provided the very clear guidelines of do not try to lift this up more than three stairs. And that was the biggest complaint we heard from EMS providers was, oh, this thing's a pain in the butt to get up five or six steps. And it's like, yeah, that's because that's when you should use your stair chair. But there's these critical thinking decision makers who are used to getting things done, getting an airway, ret- returning uh, a pulse, getting IV access. They're used to getting things done quickly. Um, and what we have to do is emphasize the moments where we don't need to do things quickly. We need to take our time and do things safely and do things where we all go home at the end of the day, including the patient. Um, It's an epidemic I experienced when I started here uh, in Murray Regional uh, Medical Center uh, as the director of EMS. I was immediately approached by our occupational health team and uh, human resources team saying, hey, you've got a lot of back injuries. What can we do to reduce that? Uh, and we did a big 360 look. We brought in, luckily we're a health system owned EMS system. So we brought in physical therapists to talk about safe lifting and safe moving of patients. Uh, we use a unit council to dissect injuries and figure out how they could be prevented. Um, we committed to 100% power loads, even on remounts. And we purchased two Elks. Uh, it was one of the first things we did. And just like in Richmond, there was a lot of reservations and a lot of, ugh, what is this thing? Is it really going to work? Uh, and now a sign of success, the same success we saw in Richmond is crews would be dispatched to a call that was either a known heavy lift or it was a caution utility in the CAD that said this patient weighs in excess of 350 pounds and crews are calling for lifting assistance or a lifting device like the elk before they even get on scene. And that's a sign of success, in my opinion. This is an audio podcast, but of course, we're all looking at each other here. Matt is jumping up and down in his chair. Go on, Matt. I I have to tell you, Brian, it it resonates with me so much about the culture. First, I just want to say, I'm not working for Stryker and I don't get kickbacks from them, but I wouldn't at 52 be on the ambulance like I was on Monday without power low power lift stretchers and trapped stair chairs. My body would not support that. Um, Just as an anecdote, the other day, I was in a reserve, reserve, reserve truck and it had a power lift stretcher without a power load. And let me tell you, those things are heavy. And that is a lot of lifting for you to do on your body. And there's great, you know, benefits from it. But at the same time, let me tell you what, that was uh, a challenge to do for that part of my shift when I was in a reserve truck. Um, I think speed is the thing you just talked about. And culturally, there's so much to change. We have trained our people to work as quickly as possible to turn around, get to the next call, bring lifting devices into the call. Like every organization I know is required to bring a lifting device in because they want to save time rather than go in, assess the call, assess the the area, see what the best way to get the patient is, and then take an extra 30 seconds, minute, two minutes, go back and figure out what's going on and get the right lifting device. And I think we shoehorn that in. It's the reason, and you, you said it, that we bring the stretcher into houses, even though that thing's not supposed to go up more than three steps. 
because it weighs a ton, but people do it because hell, I'm meeting the policy requirement that we've set in place to bring a lifting device in so I can have my 10 minute or 15 minute on scene time and not get banged by my supervisor on a QA flag for why I was on scene too long, therefore reducing my unit availability out into the system and it all spirals out of control. The other piece of it, and I'm so glad to hear you say it, Brian, is the, con the concept of the calling preemptively for lift assist. I cannot tell you how many organizations are culturally, if not legally, but culturally prohibited from calling for lift assist because people are like, oh no, if I call that, they will bust my balls. They'll give me a hard time. They'll yell and scream or the fire department, the engine company will come in and give them crap for doing that. I'm going to give a shout out. I don't want to talk about other organizations, but I will say personally, I work for the Cherry Hill Fire Department and we are a fully EMT department. And uh, I will have members of the, on the suppression side preemptively come to calls. They did it the other night in dinner. We they were sitting eating and they put a call out for us and they were like, we know this call. She's big. We're just going to come with you. And they self-dispatched and, you know, jumped on the call and came with us to this uh, lift assist because they knew how big the patient was from knowing their area. And it was great community care for the fact that they knew their community really well and that they knew this house because it was a suppression issue as well. But they came to back us up without asking. And, and that's the kind of culture we need to get towards is moving a little slower, doing what's right for the patient, doing what's right for people and not forcing this like, go, 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 move the patient out attitude that we've got. We also, we also have to remove that stigma that it's okay to ask for help. Yes. Uh, you know, I look back when I started in, um, you know, I, I started school in, in, I think, 99 or 2000. And uh, if you wore safety glasses or you wore gloves just to touch a patient, you were a sissy, right? Uh, the more blood you had on your uniform shirt, the cooler you were. And if you wore your seatbelt in the ambulance, you were a loser. And, you know, it only took me waiting, uh, I think it was two weeks, to find out if I uh, had contracted hepatitis from getting blood in my eye before I wear safety glasses on every single call. Same here. Yep. But the difference is you injure your back or you gravely injure a patient in moving them. Uh, you don't just take antiretrovirals. You're out of the job. Yeah. And, and your, your point is so well made. It's these little teeny things, wearing safety glasses, taking a few minutes to lift, wearing your seatbelt. I, I beat the seatbelt one on the safety piece and it's not related to the topic here, but you're right on all of these changing the culture safety things that we have to do. And they're the lowest of the low hanging fruit. My gosh, it takes so little effort to wear goggles, take some time with your lifting, wear your seatbelt and our people have longer careers and our patients don't get hurt. It's the win, 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 win. So sorry, Simon, I think I jumped on you there. No, no, you're fine, Matt. I mean, you mentioned about larger size uh, fallers, larger size patients. I was just sort of wondering sort of how decisions are made across in the US around lifting the larger patients and how that works. We've sort of just had some feedback um, and I'm just sort of interested in the view on, on how those decisions are made. Speaking locally, you know, we try to use that crew resource management of two to go, one to say no. So if anybody on the scene feels like, uh, a specific device tool or additional personnel are required, then there's no stigma of, no, we can get it done. Uh, ev ev you know, it takes one person to say, nope, we need to call for a lift assistance and then lift assistance is called for, or hey, we need to call for a device to lift this patient and that device is called for. Or, you know, there's a great meme of, of two people, one saying, uh, let's get the stair chair and the other saying, no, let's make them walk. 
And uh, it's the same in the crew resource management. If somebody feels like the stair chair is the best way to get that patient moved, then that's what's used. Matt, I've got a question for you, mate, because, of course, we are um, you know, being listened to in the UK as well when this comes out. I get a lot of questions from, from paramedics in the UK. They want to come and work in the US because it's all sunshine and palm trees. Well, it is where I live, but not, not anywhere else. Not in Jersey. Um, but when somebody puts their back out, right, what happens administratively, because of course it's a different system in the UK. So talk to me about workman's compensation and everything else. Explain to our friends over the pond how it works here. Yeah, that's a great point. So the United States has what's called the workers' compensation system. And basically what happens is if you have a work-acquired injury, you give up your right to sue your boss for you getting hurt at work in exchange for being taken care of by your boss's workers' compensation medical care. So your care is all paid for, but you don't get to sue your boss if they screwed up. So you can't come back and say, well, if you had given me better stretchers or better equipment or competency me better, then I could not have injured my back. So that's the trade-off you make. There is legally um, an area where you can have third-party liability, but it's hard to do in the EMS fire police context. You can sue, they say, a homeowner for creating a dangerous condition but you can't, there's a thing called the fireman's rule, which is a terrible name, but it's what it's still called. Um, but the fireman's rule says that you can't sue if you were called there to mitigate that particular hazard. So you can't be the fire department, come to a house, put out the fire and say, well, I got burned in the fire because you, your house is on fire. Well, that's kind of why you got called there. Lifting people falls often in that category. Um, the problem is that your organizations and depending on the local rule, the union contract, who the employer type is, is it a private entity, is it a not-for-profit, is it a governmental entity? There are a hodgepodge of rules for what happens if you injure yourself to the point where you can no longer work. And the vast majority of that in the United States is, thank you for your time, good luck, Here's your, you know, walking papers, go find another job that doesn't involve carrying people. And, you know, sorry for your permanent back injury and the fact that you're going to be crippled for the rest of your life. So it's really, really tough in the United States. You get your medical care paid for, but not much else. And to be fair, and I don't want to disparage the comp system, but I'm going to, um, the care that you get during the comp system is usually not the um, the most uh, advanced and ideal people doing that you you don't have you know choice in providers so it's often a challenge to to get the care that you want which and I, I probably have just convinced the entire UK and anybody else internationally from ever coming to the United States and working because everybody has just slammed on the brakes and said no way am I coming to the US um, you have the palm trees there we don't we have good pizza. So I don't know that the pizza is going to overwhelm that. Thank you for explaining that, Matt. Again, you know, there's obviously some misunderstandings or just education required from, you know, different countries. While paramedics across the world actually put them in a room, and Brian's actually been there when we've done this, we've put paramedics from different countries in the room, and within 30 seconds, they have the same complaints, the same issues. And actually... Putting their back out is one of those uh, constant international issues. So it's not just, you know, constrained to here in the US. We're about halfway through. I just want to take a second just to talk about some other falls-related programs you can go and listen to. And uh, our good friend Ginger Locke did a Medic Mindset show, which is actually also carried on uh, EMS One and the EMS One family of podcasts, where she talked about falls and actually not the mechanics of lifting, but actually the potential injuries and long-term effects of falls and falling. 
And she had that discussion with Dr. Maya Dorsett. And so if you get a chance when you've obviously finished listening to this podcast, is also click across the EMS1 channel, find that Medic Mindset episode, and go and have a listen to Ginger and Maya where they talk about the philosophy of the faller. And obviously, because MPDS Code 17 isn't a medical condition, it's gravity, right? And so therefore, we actually, that's that means there's something is happening to that patient. It could be alcohol versus gravity. It could be that other classic polypharmacy causing gravity to occur. Have a listen to that. Obviously, we're talking about the mechanics of lifting here, but just get a chance to go and listen to, to Maya and Ginger. Also, as we're uh, on EMS1, which of course is a part of Lexapol, take a moment to go and look at the Grant Finder program because that will help you if no matter what state you're in. Okay, there's no such thing as free money, first of all, because you have to do all this reporting back on it. But as Brian knows, you have to be in it to win it. You have to work. If there's grants out there, go and apply for them. And Lexapol has this grant finder that allows you to go in, log in, look at the state you're in for state level grants, look at federal grants that you and your organization can apply for to help you along the way with such things as lifting equipment and uh, medical equipment, stretches, etc. So Lexapol Grant Finder. Matt. Yeah, I, I love your your shout outs to all the other people doing podcasts. And I, I absolutely love the collegiality of this. Uh, I just want to say one other thing here, and I, I hope it's relevant to what we're talking about, but we're talking about patients. And I really want to be clear on this because it's one of these legal issues that I see discussed regularly. And I see EMS providers kind of spinning their wheels on this around the world. Um, you know, we teach a documentation course and it comes up in that context because we document patient encounters and we don't document non-patient encounters, get refusals the same way. I, I want to say this for everyone listening as clear as I can. If you're on the floor you're a patient. Hard stop. There is no getting around that. There's no other discussion. That person who's on the floor, it, it can't get up. People don't just live on the floor. If they can't get up off the floor, there's a darn good reason. And you better find out why they got there. Did they have a syncopal episode or a stroke or a seizure or a slip and fall? Did they hit their head? Did they break their hip? Did they have some other musculoskeletal injury? Do they have some kind of a you know hemodynamic instability that happens or they're hypo, uh, hypotensive or are they um, orthostatic? There's a lot of things that go on with people. And I just want to be 100% clear. Every one of those people is a patient hard stop. I was given at one of the classes that I taught, and I want to talk about this because uh, I pulled the reference in the background while we were given commercials. Um, there's a study, and it's a PEC study from 2000 that basically says, or from 2017, I'm sorry, that basically says that 10% of the people who you go out for a lift assist for have some kind of comorbid issue that they're dead in 30 days. Okay. All of these calls we go on, we're like, oh, let me just pick them up and put them back in bed and not assess for fractures and not assess for vital signs and not get a patient refusal and not counsel them and look for other things are time bombs. OK, because even if you go after that person five times a week, the sixth time you're anchoring bias, you are going to miss that person who has something really sick wrong with them. And I see this as a recurring issue wherever I teach my stuff around the country. Um, and, and this is a huge piece that I think everybody listening to this has got to wrap their heads around. Actually, that is exactly where Maya and Ginger went in their podcast. So that, yeah. that's a, a great segue to that too. Let's take a moment to pause for the mid-show read. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioural health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, 
visit lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please make sure you uh, give us a rating. Give us a five-star rating, obviously, uh, so we uh, stay up there in the in the charts. So uh, do that. Um, Simon, hearing everything that we've said, of course, you guys have produced a very useful white paper, uh, which is now available here in the US. So uh, tell us all about that. Part of our focus in in the US, um, as you're aware, is to improve understanding of falls. We uh, at Manga consider ourselves to be specialists in post-fall management. We've been working with clinicians and educating clinicians around falls, how to pick people up appropriately, the impact of falls on residents of care homes. So yeah, the white paper talk talks through falls some of the impact of the long lie uh, I, I know you're aware of but some of the the data we have in the UK at the moment is pretty horrendous I mean we are having fallers in care homes for example lay on the floor for 15 to 20 hours to wait for an ambulance with COVID and the well how busy the ambulance services are they're just not able to get out to some of these falls so I think we're all aware of the comorbidities that can happen with you know, skin damage and pneumonia and all sorts of stuff of being on the floor that amount of time. Yeah, I mean, the, the white paper sort of t- just talks through safe lifting. There's various uh, bits of data in terms of the benefits of uh, having a post-fall management fall program. Some of the, uh, I suppose, advantages and benefits for healthcare workers, but also as Matt was talking about the the patient of lifting somebody from the floor quickly, talked about the long lie. So yeah, I mean, it, it covers a whole heap of stuff. There's a bit about grants in there for uh, lifting equipment. Yeah, and a bit about some of the options for some of that some of that equipment. But yeah, that's available now. And all of the things that we've talked about, and, and Matt, if you want to send me your references too, we'll make sure they appear in the show notes so people can see uh, everything that they need to need to see. I just want to echo really quick what Brian said. This is about CRM and, and crew, and I love Brian. I love your analogy there. Um, you know, we teach CRM uh, through the firm in a just culture context, and we kind of touch on it there very briefly. And I think they're all directly related. The concept of the ability to say, I'm going to call for help for this person to lift, to take my time to, you know, not run in with the stair chair or the stretcher or that thing, because I want to figure out what the best way of moving this patient is and taking five extra minutes on the scene to help the patient and help the crew is just this cultural thing we have to get around that I commend you guys for using CRM for it. But I think everybody listening to this, we create these policies like the no sleeping policy. That's just an anachronism. No, you can't sleep at work. Why? Well, because we don't want people being sleepy. Well, okay, but the problem is the opposite is true. And we actually find that when people take power naps at work, they're actually more awake and it's beneficial to them. I think these move fast, expedite your on-scene time and bring a lifting device into every call preemptively, no matter what it is, no matter what the circumstances and that blanket policy can, can really lead to worse patient and worse provider outcomes. And I think we need to slow that down and reevaluate a lot of those things. Just to touch on what Matt was saying, uh, you know, there is a big difference between a patient and a person. Um, the, the guideline we provide our EMS providers is if you touch this person for any reason, they are now a patient. Um, if the person is in any level of distress, any level of discomfort, they are a patient. 
uh, and they are required to conduct a refusal. Even if the patient doesn't want to participate in the refusal process, you say, well, I really want to you know, assess you, evaluate you, no problem, and then complete a refusal with refusal to sign. But you touch a really good point that we as an organization have a responsibility to give our employees the tools to do the right thing. And that's not just laryngoscopes and syringes. That's time and abilities to make good decisions. And I love how you said that so well. I just want to, you know, rubber stamp and emphasize the heck out of that. The tool for time is a thing. And right now it's harder as everyone's listening to this. You know, we're spending hours and hours and hours on walls. I tell you that I worked the truck Monday and we're recording this on a Wednesday. And it's the first shift that I've worked in months where I did not have 45 minute to hour long wall times with all of my drops. Um, it's it, you know, drop patients uh, at the hospital, not patients that were dropping on the floor. Um, but, you know, our, our offload times were not as bad as they have been. But, you know, that exacerbates this even more. So, you know, the, these things are all related, unfortunately. But the concept of empowering people to make those good decisions by giving them time. Um, you know, similarly, we complain that they have bad charts. They write bad charts, yet we're demanding that they turn around, and be out of the hospital again in 10 minutes and we'll be on the next call. And we're like, well, duh, of course their charting is bad because you're giving them like 14 seconds to write a chart while they're cleaning their stuff and washing their hands and deconning the ambulance and going to the bathroom. So all of those things tie in together. So yes, 100% dude. Put in a quick plug for your uh, fellow law colleagues, uh, Wolf Bergenworth and the Ambulance's Held Hostage webinar. You want to hear about wall times, uh, go listen to that. And uh, only this week, I was, in a, I was in an audience with the chairman of the California Emergency Management Committee talking about, guess what, APOT, Ambulance Patient Offload Times. It's still a big issue. People think COVID uh, has gone away, therefore, so of wall times. No. They've just gone down. They've gone from an exceptionally high level to just a high level, but that's still high. So we're dealing with that. Simon, anything we want to uh, we want to consider as we come to a close here? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about some of the changes. We, we talked about the culture that needs to change. I'm just, I suppose, I'm interested in how that could happen, how the culture could could change to improve things with with lifting. And the other piece I was just interested to hear about was just the senior living policy. We've been informed that there's a policy they fall, you call to the emergency services and just the impact that has on the emergency services and what that piece looks like. I think I'm going to push that one to Brian first because you gave a knowing grin there, Brian. No, I've seen that many times in my career where somebody's emergency plan ends with call 911 because that's what we're there for, right? When people don't know what to do and they've exhausted their means of managing or mitigating a situation, they call 911. Sometimes it's, it's, it's mindlessly when in reality, they could have internal plans to either prevent or manage. But we as EMS providers are there to be the best moments of somebody's worst times. And uh, when they don't know what to do, it's their emergency. So they call us and it's up to us to have plans and equipment and people to manage those issues. We actually, in the UK, back in the day, of course, we had falls vans that would go around because, of course, there's a pattern to falling. And, you know, there certain times of the day, people are more prevalent to fall. I always used to say, we get out of bed and we fall over. All right. So there was that kind of thing. So there was there was services that would go around and conduct, you know, that sort of assessment and and putting people back on their feet. Um, we also sort of started to look at the reasons that people, and I'm talking about the days where the VCR was underneath the television, right? And so what did grandpa do? He would bend down to change the tape and then couldn't get up again. Or, you know, those uh, those rugs that we, we have in the front doorway would, you know, immediately become slip mats. Or the pair of slippers that we gave grandpa for Christmas, of course, he didn't want to change them 
until next Christmas. And therefore, by about July, when they're threadbare, then you trip over and fall out of them. And so, you know, there's lots of re- lots of things that we can do by way of assessment. And of course, that kind of segues where I'm going, Brian, here, of course, if you've got community paramedics, right? And so, you know, this could be some a great opportunity and a great way for your community paramedic program to get more integrated into the community, perhaps. You know, we're very fortunate. We're, we're in the process of establishing a community paramedicine program through a grant, through health and human services um, that focuses on telemedicine. But being a health system-based EMS service, we have a ton of resources available to us. Home health care, care management, case managers, physical therapists, all things that we're able to refer our patients to. Uh, with that, I'll say, don't just let, you know, Johnny falls a lot, be Johnny falls a lot. Oh, we're going there again, right? Do something about it. Your administrators and the leaders in your organization should hopefully be building up war chests of resources, both, you know, health system-based or local private organizations that can build ramps, put in handbars, or empower your employees to make the decisions of, hey, can we take a second and, and talk to you about what we can do to make your living situation better so you're not falling as much? Or, hey, can we refer you to a care manager within a local health system? Um, and that's where those partnerships come into play. And that just, I'm going to go off on a total tangent here, but of course, managing those frequent service users, uh, as Matt Zavadsky would say, their most valuable patients, their MVPs. I remember a time where this lady used to call us uh, every night at seven o'clock, Brian, and yeah. you solved this one for us. What did you do? So she, uh, her doctor told her not to drink wine with her anti-anxiety medications. So instead of not drinking the wine, she wouldn't take her anxiety medications. Uh, and she would have anxiety issues and she would call every night between seven and nine o'clock. But the problem was she lived in the very outskirts of one of our medium volume posts and it was a winter evening and an ambulance crew went through, a, a, you know, ice and snow to get to a person to tell, to talk them through an anxiety attack. And uh, she just needed to be told that she was safe and everything was okay. And to my chagrin, I'm unable to say no, as my wife would tell you. Um, so I got her phone number and I asked, is it okay if I call you every evening? And man, if, if that's not what happened, uh, at least through the winter months or until we were able to get a more substantial care plan for, I called her every night between seven and nine. And if I didn't, I got a call from the supervisor saying, man, weren't you supposed to call her? She's called 911 twice so far. But um, it goes back to what works today is not going to work tomorrow. What worked yesterday is not going to work today. You know, getting there and, and patting somebody on the shoulder and saying, no, 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 you're okay. You call us back anytime you need us is not what's good today. It's not the model that's going to work for EMS today. And I think we call that person the Jeopardy caller in the end because, of course, we, we narrowed it down to once Jeopardy ended, they would call. So Brian would then call as soon as Jeopardy was over. That was that, that, that story, but actually it's about prevention. Brian. Try explaining on a first date. Uh, hold on. I've got to call this lady. I'll explain later. Uh, that was always a fun conversation to have. Well, there we go. I don't think we can top that, uh, Matt, unless you've got a got a story that can. No, it's very funny, though, because I'm thinking of a gentleman who is a homeless man who works and uh, lives in Cherry Hill, where I, where I practice. And um, we have his, he you know lives in the woods, basically out behind our station. Um, and he's very happy living out there. And he calls the ambulance not infrequently, but I wouldn't say that he is a high user. But he has the truck cell phone number and we have his cell phone number. And there are people who check on him regularly. And we've kind of created that, um, you know, kind of grassroots effort for this gentleman. And I'll, I'll tell you here as a sidebar that I brought him into the ER once you talk about anchoring bias. Um, I brought him into the ER with chest pain and they looked at him and immediately put him in the waiting room. And I had words with the uh, the charge nurse, which are the flow nurse there, saying, 
this is anchoring bias. You're looking at him as a guy who you see once a week with some healthcare issue. I'm telling you, he's having a cardiac event right now. Do not put him in the waiting room. And she ignored me and put him in the waiting room anyway. But it's back to the same thing of the lift assist. It's that same kind of bias that we get when we go out to that person, you know, five times a week. Eventually, that person's going to have a big event and we're going to miss it because we're treating them like the person who just goes and falls and hits the ground and we're not assessing them and we're being complacent and we do this very regularly. Um, so I, uh, I, I wish that there were more systems that had structures in place to provide alternative pathways. What's funny is the average paramedic knows these people, knows their houses, knows their addresses. If you work in an area, everybody knows this stuff and they do this almost uh, unofficially within their systems. It's just you know, kind of legitimizing a lot of what we automatically do that is the process uh, thing to, to kind of modernize EMS in this. Thank you for that, wise words. So in summary, I think the moral of the podcast or the moral of the story is that now we can do a lot to prevent our providers putting their backs out. We can do a lot in the community to prevent, you know, those frequent fallers falling frequently. There's a tongue twister for you. And obviously, we've got our friends uh, over in the UK giving us a useful white paper to uh, help us think about these things. Uh, Before we go, uh, Brian, I think you've got some closing thoughts for us. I I do. And it's a responsibility issue. Um, As EMS leaders and EMS chief officers and executives, you have a responsibility to keep your employees safe. And you have a responsibility to give them those tools to do so. Um, I have no greater responsibility in my whole career than to keep the EMS providers that I'm responsible for safe, happy, and productive. And now in turn, as an EMS provider, you have a responsibility to be safe, happy, and productive. And if you're working for an organization that's not giving you the tools to do that, it's your responsibility to speak up just as much as it's their responsibility to provide you those things. So it's it's a 50-50. We're accountable to each other. Yes, this is EMS. Unfortunately, we may not go home on time all the time, but we really, really want you to go home. Let's carry on. Matt, have you got any final thoughts for us? I, I honestly just want to just, I've been sitting here with my thumbs being up in the air. We're on a Zoom doing this, and I'm giving Brian this giant thumbs up with both of my thumbs echoing what he just said. Um, I completely echo that. There are some low-hanging fruit here, and as servant leaders – who provide services, provide resources, and eliminate barriers to care for our people, there's some really easy low-hanging fruit that will make our providers' lives better and our patient lives better. And really what we're talking about here is less, you know, power load, powerless stretchers and low-hanging fruit like goggles and seatbelts and taking time to train people on how to lift and move properly. It's, it's you know, the, the, the high expense things are there and there's capital items that we can do that will fix that. But at the same time, there's some really easy, low-hanging fruit for us. And I think it is endemic upon us to go and pick them and eat them and to slaughter these horrific old school sacred cows for these policies like sleeping on duty and bringing a device into every single call without exception as a disciplinary offense to fix the way we do things and to change our culture. So, Brian, I love everything you had to say. Um, I, you know, echo all of that wholeheartedly. Today, I seem to be plugging all the references, but also catch my interview with Dan Patterson and also read my article, An EMS Bedtime Story, because tactical napping is a thing and you should be doing it. Uh, Simon, give us your final thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Yeah, for me, just a couple of points. Patients, as we've discussed earlier, really do deserve to be picked up quickly, 
safely and with dignity, in my view. And there's there's a heap of clinical research to back that up. And from the other side, carers really deserve appropriate training, appropriate manual handling techniques, and the right equipment to pick fallers up. Yeah, my request is 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 let's let's make that happen wherever we can. Simon, thank you. So Brian, how can we get hold of you? I'm available by email at bhup at murrayregional.com. Uh, I also have a LinkedIn profile and a Facebook profile. Uh, and then you can learn more about Murray Regional Health at murrayregional.com. Thank you. Matt, how can we follow you? Uh, easiest way is to email me, Matthew, which is my first name, M-A-P-T-H-E-W, at keevneystrieger.com, which is a law firm. You can go to keevneystrieger.com and contact us that way. You can call us, 732-806-1395 is the direct line for uh, our firm. You can reach Margaret or myself there. Um, you can find us on LinkedIn. You can find us on Facebook. Um, you can send us an owl. I'm a Slytherin if you want to send an owl. That's probably the other easy way to get me. Excellent. I have no idea what you just said, but it sounds good and it'll also be in the show notes. Simon, how can we get hold of you? Yep, you can contact me directly on my email, which is simon.claridge at wincare.uk. That's simon.claridge at wincare.uk. Uh, you can visit our website, which is www.wincare.uk. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Excellent, Simon. Thank you. And I'm going to leave us all with one visual here. This is an audio podcast, but actually we are all watching on the screen Mr. Strieger Esquire with his cat and a laser pointer, and it's chasing it around the room. So we'll leave you with that image. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1. Also over on LinkedIn, catch all of the shows over on the Inside EMS. Uh, and I'm sure that after this show coming right up is Chris and Kelly with Inside EMS. And, I'm, and they've always got something entertaining to say. So look out for that. So for the moment, gentlemen, thank you very much. That's about it for this show. And so until next time, bye for now.